I work in a university, <laughs> I am the least communist person of all the people I work with, and I am also by far the most working class. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true. How'd you spend your summer? Um, fixing tractors. Yep. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. George here, keeping it real. <laughs> you watch Space Jam or something? <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, what's on the agenda this week? So, today we are picking up where we left off last week and continuing the epic odyssey of pain and persecution that is Irish history. Now that we've gotten a good picture of the background, and a bleak and dreary picture it was, we will be covering the 19th century and the lead-up to the Easter Rising, and, of course... The life of our hero, James Connolly. All right, I'm ready, and I think a lot of our listeners are too. I've gotten more feedback on the History of Ireland episode, the last one we did, than I think I've gotten on anything. People are furious <laughs> about the British Empire. As they should be. Yes, and I think that's why we need to get our asses down to the History Lab. Any affirmation? Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there we go. I thought, I thought, thought, I thought we, were, we were done, okay. One empire, one stupid state church, millions of starving peasants, and a world of oppression. Join us as we continue our sad pilgrimage through Irish history, and remember, the bill is coming. So, Aaron, I know you're dying to tell us your thoughts about the Joker, so you might as well get that off your chest now so you can focus on the episode. I'm sorry we only have this stupid elevator instead of stairs for you to dance down. Yeah, to the Hey song, which, you know, everyone's up in arms about now because apparently some pedophile wrote it and is profiting off of the usage of it within the movie and everyone's screaming about it. Oh my god. Uh, the media has to do something now that there wasn't the shooting that they had tried to program us to do. A pedophile um, in the entertainment industry? Shocking. <laughs> Imagine my shock. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was okay. Um, there were some scenes in it that I thought were, that stood out as more than excellent. Um, there were some scenes that were garbage and the movie was a little bit long, I thought, but overall I gave it like a 7.5. It keeps waffling as I see pirated clips of it going around the internet because some of the clips are really, really, really good. But when you see it in context, of the actual movie, it, it doesn't work quite as well. So I know I've asked you this before, but are you going to see it? I just, I don't know. I mean, living near a college campus, I already live in some sort of perverse circus world. And I just, I don't know if I need any more clowns in my life. This week, I almost got into an accident because drunk undergrads ran into the road and started twerking while I was trying to make a goddamn left turn. Like, <laughs> I dare any fictional psychotic clown to match that level of insanity. What the hell happened to us, man? If only know. you knew how bad things really were. Yeah. 
in that moment you're sitting in your car, just your hands on the steering wheel and you're just your knuckles turn white. <laughs> <laughs> All right, computer, please bring up James Connolly and oh wait, the tabs are still open from last week. Cool. Uh oh no, wait, shit. Now I have two of everything open and it's freezing up. Oh my god. God damn it, Aaron. Did, did you put anything so, I don't know, boring and pedestrian as a control-off-delete function on your supercomputer? Uh, I, I didn't I didn't build this thing. Uh, James put it together from scraps he found at the junk. What are you talking about, dead people? We'll return shortly. Okay, we're good. Everything's good. Why don't we start off with a little recap where we left off? Because it's been so long and some people won't go back and listen to the full episode like they should. Excellent idea. So, last time, we left off right after a lovely century of exploitation and oppression called the Protestant Ascendancy. Terrible name. <laughs> which ended with the United Irishmen Rebellion of 1798, a movement which saw the two politically excluded groups in Ireland, the Catholic Irish and the Presbyterian Scotch-Irish settlers in the north, who, between the two of them, made up over 95% of the population, rise up together against the English and get brutally suppressed as the British and so-called Anglo-Irish enacted a reign of terror and pretty much slaughtered and burned a bloody swath across Ireland to deal with this rebellion and indiscriminately murdered anyone suspected of being in sympathy with the rebels. Huh. I just had that, that meme pop into my head where you got the black guy and the white guy like grabbing arms and like flexing together. With the Protestant, the Protestants <laughs> and the Catholics, like, getting together, like, Anglo-Irish. <laughs> yeah, that's what popped into my head, just saying. That's fair, that's fair. Mm. So, although the movement of the United Irishmen had started out among Presbyterians in the North, it was the Catholics who carried out most of the action in the rebellion and indeed suffered most of the consequences, as the British heavily focused on suppressing the uprising violently in the Catholic South, while making efforts to appease the Presbyterians. They did this mm. by, for one thing, allowing them the political rights which were previously withheld, and thus forming a new super-Protestant ascendancy. That is, Anglicans and Presbyterians having rights. Novel we're concept. reaching maximum Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> they also actively worked to drive a wedge between Presbyterians and Catholics in Ireland, and stoke, uh, you know, religious and sectarian fears between them. And they were pretty good at this, though they did have, you know, a decent amount of material to work with. During this rebellion, there was an incident where a group of um, about a hundred loyalist prisoners, most of whom were Protestant, were massacred by rebels fleeing from a defeat after the rebels had received a report that a number of wounded rebels had been burnt alive in a house by the military. So they are kind of upset and things get out of hand and they yeah. kill some of their prisoners. Um, this event, which is called the Skullabow Massacre, was instantly seized on by the British propaganda machine. They made sure that all the Protestants in Ireland were well aware of what had happened, or rather well aware of what they wanted them to think had happened. Classic. The British authorities framed it as a religiously motivated massacre, an act of genocide against Protestants, the perfect wedge to split the Protestants and the Catholics, who up to this point had both opposed British rule in Ireland. Yeah, that just leave it to a tyrannical government to take 
a event and pump it up so that it's like a bigger deal. Yeah. <clears throat> Make everyone feel afraid. You know, that's a great way to divide people. Yep. The reality, however, was that the Skullabo Massacre was a terrible but unpremeditated and certainly, you know, not out of nowhere act of misguided vengeance by desperate people. Among those who were killed, among the Loyalists, were not only Protestants, but also about 20 Catholics. And among the 17 rebels who were involved in the massacre, three of them were Protestants. So the the proportion of Protestants to Catholics was actually about the same on both the people being massacred and the people doing the massacring. But, but what's the truth? Seized upon. Yeah, what's the truth worth when you can have propaganda? Yeah, exactly. Propaganda is so good. Mm. Love me some propaganda. That's why I saw the Joker movie. <laughs> or should I say survived a screening opening night. So um, yeah, so this um, this propaganda combined with the new acceptance of Presbyterians into the political elite effectively brought most of the Protestants in Ireland into step with the program of British tyranny. However, there were some non-Catholics who continued to oppose British rule. Um, though... From this time on, it would be primarily a Catholic thing. Okay. After the downfall of the 1798 Rebellion, small groups continued to operate and fight the military and guerrilla warfare in various parts of Ireland, generally with the help and support of the local populace. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> <coughs> Until around 1804. <laughs> okay. All right, so good. three of the last uh, rebel leaders were Robert Emmett, who was actually born into the Anglo-Irish Anglican aristocracy. Whoa. Michael Dwyer, who was a Presbyterian, and James Corcoran, who was a Catholic. Which is nice that they have this little trifecta, but that nice little trinity notwithstanding, from here on out, resistance to the British would almost always happen along sectarian lines, with most of the Protestants being on the side of the crown. Mm, classic Protestantism. So, during the preceding decade, um, so the lead-up to and time of and aftermath of the Rebellion of 98, the British government had backed a new fraternal organization of Loyalist Protestants called the Orange Order. (laughs) They were named after William of Orange, the Protestant Dutchman bastard king of England, who we heard about last week. (laughs) We talk a fucking Dutchman! Exactly. So not only was did he become king, years and years later he has the Orange Order named after him. What a fucker. So the Orange Order had actually Orange Man Bad. <laughs> orange Man Bad oh. oh god. Orange Man Bad. You heard it here first, folks. So The Orange Order had actually started out as literally just a Protestant street gang, and Uh it never really stopped acting like pretty much just a criminal street gang. Um, They were founded with the explicit purpose of driving out every Catholic living in the north of Ireland. And in the pledge they took to join, they pledged to... I'm I'm not going to read this in a stupid accent. Um, They pledged to defend the king and his heirs so long as he or they support the Protestant ascendancy. Yikes. What a fucking stupid gang. <laughs> Loyal to the crown? That's like the worst kind of gang. <laughs> yeah. 
Within two months of being founded, they had driven about 7,000 Catholics out of County Armagh, which is where they were based. Um, the Orangemen were viciously sectarian, and in addition to enthusiastically assisting the military in putting down the rebellion, they also engaged in widespread burning of Catholic churches in the aftermath of the rebellion. Oh, okay. And so they're kind of a constant presence, but they really don't become super, super important until much later on. Okay. Um, the political fallout from this whole rebellion thing was that the already non-existent autonomy of Ireland was further curtailed, and the so-called Irish Parliament, which was already made up of Anglo-Irish Anglican aristocrats anyway, Anglo-Irish Anglican arist that's not like a tongue twister, jeez. Um, and, um, so that was dissolved, and Ireland was annexed into a monstrosity called the United Kingdom. Oh, I think I've heard of that place. Aren't they, like, going through, like, police state bullshit right now or something? I mean... Whatever they're going through, know. it's not bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, this was done um, by having both the English Parliament and the fake Irish Parliament pass the Act of Union, which would go into effect in 1801. Um, so, basically, the Irish Parliament voted itself out of existence. Come on. <laughs> so there were a couple reasons for this this political change. The government thought that maybe the free reign that the Protestant landowners had had in tormenting the Irish might have contributed in some small way to the Irish rebelling. <laughs> I don't know. This seems far-fetched to me. I don't, sounds I don't like a conspiracy theory yeah, to sounds me. Like a consp that sounds like something that, uh, you know, the 18th century equivalent of Alex Jones would be saying. But Yeah. Know. Yep. Another issue was that a lot of people in government thought that eventually they were going to have to give Catholics the political franchise, that it was going to be inevitable in the long run at some point that it would happen. And if that happened, they didn't want the possibility of a Catholic Irish parliament trying to break Ireland away from Britain. Damn. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> this has been going on for 200 years. People, The UK... It's just trying to break itself up, and it just can't do it. Yep. So, a big point of the political negotiations leading up to the Act of Union was that very question of Catholic voting rights. Um, the Prime Minister, William Pitt, was in favor of giving rights to Catholics and removing the prohibitions from Catholics serving in public office. Pitt believed that for long-term stability, Catholics, even though he didn't like them, needed to be integrated, not persecuted, or else you would always have a per or perpetual sort of powder keg next to you. Right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So, among other things, uh, William Pitt actually made arrangements for funding to be set aside by the government to build a Catholic seminary to train priests in Ireland. Huh. Now, this seems nice and all, but there are definitely political motivations going on here as well. Since, if you don't have Irish going overseas to become priests, you cut down on the whole international network of Irish resistance, the exact sort of thing that led to the French helping in the Rebellion of 1798. And also, if you have oversight over the seminary because you're paying for it, you can try to subtly form leadership for the church that will be less opposed to the government. Hmm. And, indeed, that does seem to have been going well, since most of the Catholic hierarchy in Ireland did not support the Rebellion of 1798. So, forward thinker, William Pitt. Um, <laughs> anyway. So he'd done all this maneuvering, 
and everything. There's been years in the making. He'd gotten everybody lined up on the political sides. He'd made the deals. It was all ready, and it was all arranged that once the Act of Union was passed, then discriminations against Catholics would be removed. But no, none other than the King of England, George III, Ugh. decided at the last minute that he would prevent that from happening, citing his oath as King of England to protect the Anglican Church. No! Yeah, so he vetoes the uh, the um, emancipation of Catholics at the last minute. So, Ugh. the Act of Union goes through, and the pretend Irish government and the pretend Church of Ireland were officially united with the British government and the Church of England, but Catholics were still not given rights. Okay. <laughs> in fairness, in fairness, uh, William Pitt actually resigned in protest of this. Oh. Um, and it was not till several decades later, in 1829, so like, you know, 30 years after this, that progress was finally made by the efforts of a Catholic Irish politician named Daniel O'Connell, who was a very charismatic and popular Irish leader. With massive public agitation having been whipped up by the speeches of O'Connell, a Anglish, an Anglo-Irish politician named Arthur Wellesley, better known as the Duke of Wellington, the victor of the Napoleonic Wars, who was at that time Prime Minister, decided that despite the fact that he was a Protestant and really had no sympathy for the Irish Catholics, he needed to do something because if he didn't, there would be a rebellion in Ireland. And when you're the Prime Minister, you really don't want rebellions happening while you're in charge. It looks bad. Right. So he basically forces the king um, to sign a repeal of the Test Act, which was the act that prohibited Catholics from exercising public office. And then, following that, the Roman Catholic Relief Act, which finally allowed Catholics to actually be elected to Parliament. Can you imagine giving people, like, human rights regardless of their religion? Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so... At that same time, as they were doing that, however, they had to throw in some mean stuff, too, because they're British. Right. So they also increased the property requirement to vote in Ireland. Um, they multiplied it by five. So they basically cut out a lot of the poor Catholics from voting anyway. And they made it illegal for Catholic clergy to have the same titles as Anglican clergy. So they basically had to pretend that some small town was the center of a diocese rather than the actual regional city since they couldn't use the title, you know, Bishop of such and such place since that would infringe on the rights of the Church of Ireland because they already had a Bishop of such and such place. So it's like, you know, instead of the uh, the Catholic Bishop being the Bishop of Chicago, he'd be called the Bishop of like some stupid suburb because <laughs> the Anglicans already have a Bishop of Chicago so he can't use that title. Yeah. So it's just so, it's stupid uh... petty shit like that. Yeah, it's it's like uh, they finally oh we look how nice we are we're giving you the stuff you want and also like ten other things you really really don't want that's gonna fuck you over you know down the line, um, and then when you you know later on when people get pissed off that you you should be grateful. Basically, the British Empire is like classic abusive relationship. Yeah. It is. Yep. And so some of this type of legislation um, wasn't repealed until fucking 1926. You're kidding me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And you know who else wasn't happy about Catholics getting the right to vote? And the right to sit in Parliament? The Protestants mm. in the north of Ireland. 
because once they'd gotten all comfy and established with political influence, they weren't about to let some goddamn papists have the same. No. So, throughout the whole 19th century, there was a whole lot of, well, pretty much gang violence involving the Orange Order and other Protestant paramilitaries and Catholic paramilitary defense groups, um, which were formed, um, they had names like the Ribbon Men was one, I think the White Boys was another, and so you basically have just gang violence between Protestant paramilitaries and then Catholic paramilitaries, most of which had originally been founded to protect poor farmers from the exploitation of landlords. Um, mm. They ended up mostly having to just fight Protestant gangs. Wow, Catholic versus Protestant all over again. It's a tale as old as time. <laughs> it's a tale as old as the 16th century. Mm. Because before that, there were none of you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Easy there, papist scum. <laughs> so, in 1831, this uh, sort of long-simmering violence finally boiled over due to the issue of tithing. Ah. I can hear the ears of our Protestant listeners perking up. <laughs> <laughs> they gotta get those fancy shoes. So, since the Anglican Church was a state church... If you were a subject to that state, you had to pay tithes, uh, 10% wow. of your produce, to the state church clergy. Clergy, Even if you weren't a member of the state church. Even if you were, oh, I don't know, a Catholic. Oh, God. So in many cases, the state clergy are receiving money from areas that were completely Catholic that they didn't live in and had no business in, but they got the right to get the tithes from that area. So you had Catholics being forced to pay for the state clergy in addition to then, you know, donating money to their own church. What the? I mean, I'm not even surprised. I'm going to stop acting surprised. <laughs> just this. Yeah, so this Catholics isn't... obviously weren't thrilled with this situation. And there was a long history of protest and civil disobedience over this throughout the 19th century um, and occasionally forceful resistance. There was one great incident, which I want to tell you about, where a Catholic member of Parliament, so this is after they were allowed to sit in Parliament, says that he's not going to pay, but that it, he's just going to make peaceful resistance, that he wasn't going to, you know, resist them seizing his stuff or anything. He's just not going to pay, won't do it. And so the government sends soldiers, and they seize his stuff. But when they try to auction it off, no one in Ireland would buy it, since they respected the, uh, the moral stand that this man had made. My god, there's so many- there's so much honor in some of these stories. It just feels good. I don't know. Yeah, it's like- I imagine the meme where it's like, as all the different pictures, and it's like, Thank you for having a, like, honorable, glorious past. But in the middle, there's a picture of the British Empire, and just not you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, I'm so proud of the Irish community. <laughs> so- in 1831, a group of Catholic priests and bishops who had balls encouraged organized resistance, and they organized a whole campaign of non-payment where lots and lots and lots of people were refusing to pay the Anglican tithes. And when soldiers tried to confiscate cattle, which had been given to a Catholic priest instead of given to the state church, masses of people refused to allow the soldiers to approach. Um, and these were now, these were soldiers, by the way, from a newly formed institution called the Royal Irish Constabulary, basically Anglo-Irish military police, more or less. <clears throat> okay. So, 
when they're not allowed to approach to seize the cattle, they do what British soldiers always do and start shooting civilians. God. Uh, killing a dozen and injuring many more. Well, what goes around comes around, and soon enough, a dozen soldiers from the Royal Irish Constabulary were dead after an ambush by Irish farmers. Well, you get what you Perfectly get what you balanced, deserve. as all things should be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is great. This is great. So when the men who were arrested for that ambush were brought to trial, Daniel O'Connell, so that, that charismatic Irish leader who had led the campaign for political rights, represented the accused in court... And not only did he do that, he also brought with him a crowd of 200,000 Irish to the small town where the trial was being held. Wow. Well, that'll do it. Yeah, I mean, talk about a power move. Needless to say, everyone was acquitted because, you know, you have, like, this little courtroom and, you know, you're, like, little guard there and then you have 200,000 Irish outside. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they, they were acquitted. Um, fancy that. Hmm. So this so-called tithe war lasted for several more years and cost hundreds of lives all over Ireland. In one instance, the British Army and the Royal Irish Constabulary killed 12 and wounded 42 during a firefight lasting several hours, all of which was trying to collect a tithe fee which equated to about $750 today. But George, it's not about the money. The British have principles. It's about sending a message. <laughs> yeah. So soon, the Church of England and the British government realized it wasn't worth it anymore because they were literally spending more to collect these things than the things actually were worth. Hmm. Um, and so they drastically reduced the, the, the payments that were being levied, and they made them a tax that was paid as part of your rent, so they kind of bundled it together with other payments rather than making it a payment directly to the Church of England. And um, that settled things mostly like the resistance was no longer as uh you know it wasn't as violent um during this whole thing i want to read you this letter one of the many catholic bishops who supported the farmers wrote this wonderful little uh little description so i'm going to read this now okay. there are many noble traits in the irish character mixed with failings which have always raised obstacles to their own well-being but an innate love of justice and an indomitable hatred of oppression is like a gem upon the front of our nation which no darkness can obscure to this fine quality I trace their hatred of tithes. May it be as lasting as their love of justice. Nice. Yep. So then, this um, this was going pretty well. Like, they made a stand, and they, they actually got, you know, they got something. They Basically, the Irish won this. This little, this little thing. That's great. The tithe war. But, tithe unfortunately, war. this victory for the Irish was followed by the greatest disaster in Irish history. Oh, no. You've all heard of it. The Great Irish Famine of 1845 to 1851. That honestly deserves its own episode, so I'm just going to give a really broad picture here. Okay. So as we know, almost all the land in Ireland is owned by the English and rented out to poor tenant farmers, most of whom had just a tiny, tiny little plot of land on which they were allowed to cultivate stuff for themselves. Most okay. of the land was crops that they had to cultivate for the landlord to export and sell. Of course. <clears throat> so, potatoes, in many cases, were the only crop which was efficient enough with, in space to feed their families. Because potatoes, you get a very high yield of calories for the space it takes to grow them. Right. So, you had a lot of these tiny, tiny little 
plots of tenant farmers that were just planted with potatoes because that was the only way to feed their families on this tiny plot. Meanwhile, huge tracts of the landowner's land, which were also worked by the tenant farmers, produced absolutely massive quantities of many different crops as well as dairy products and meat, which were all being exported mostly to England. Uh, so in 1845, yes, go on. I was just going to say, now I see how uh, pernicious and kind of evil um, making fun of the Irish for growing potatoes or whatever is. Like, yeah, it's, it's not, not, it's not. That's I mean, that, really. That, yeah, it's, there's a history there. I mean, granted, yeah. like, I'm not one to say jokes are offensive, but yeah. like there, like so, I would probably still laugh at a joke. But like, there is a history there. It's not just a, a sort of superficial thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it. You shouldn't make use. You know, it's just, it's just like if that that joke must have arisen around then, around then making fun of these poor farmers only being able to grow potatoes. Um, back then, it, it was just that's just the British mocking them for barely able to barely being able to subsist except with by growing. You know just potatoes yep Ugh. so in 1845 a particularly bad blight hits the irish potato crop and devastates the harvest which immediately plunges the country into uncertainty and instability since so many of these people are dependent on it but the british government really didn't think it was that big of a deal like at the time there's from a letter from i think it was the british prime minister where it comes up and he just says that he doesn't expect it's really much because the, the Irish uh, reports from Ireland are always drastically exaggerated and he doesn't he thinks it's all going to blow over it's not really going to be a serious issue. So the British, the British reaction was to keep the rich export stream flowing and keep extracting everything they could from Ireland. And so, Obviously. Yeah, and because, so through the whole yeah. course of the famine, massive amounts of exports were happening and... The British, you know, had troops in all the ports and on the roads making sure that the exports continued to happen. Wow. So they just kept extracting everything they could from Ireland. And even those who wanted to do something to help the Irish were very careful to avoid doing anything that was actually helpful, since many of these British felt that it would be a violation of laissez-faire economic principles if they gave handouts, and that it would hurt Ireland in the long run. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, for many, they simply didn't think it was a big deal, that the it wasn't going to be serious. And the British government refused even to lower the high tariffs that they charged on food imported to Ireland. Bastards. They really they really don't see Irish people as even as people, people, I think. Yeah, yep. yeah no, they see thing. them as subhumans. Yep. So you know, I didn't even I didn't even know about uh, like the stereotyping and persecution of Irish people back in the day uh, until I played Bioshock Infinite. And I saw this Irishman lumped in with all the other minorities, and I was like, "Why is the Irish guy there? Like, he's white or whatever." You know, it did, it didn't strike me, and now I get it. I get it because they were they were slaves who didn't like being slaves, so they get they get to go uh, up against the wall with all the others as well. Because if they don't bend the knee, you know, these people think of them as subhuman, and yep. that's it's the exact opposite of what it is. I don't know, pisses so- me off. As the blight continues for several years, the situation obviously gets worse and worse. Um, under the land laws in force at the time, if the production of a plot of land, that the amount it produced, which was rented by a tenant, didn't reach a certain level, like if it didn't reach a very low threshold, 
then the landlord rather than the tenant then rather than the tenant had to pay certain taxes on the land. So if you barely produced anything, rather than you being taxed for the land, the landlord had to pay the tax. Right. So with the blight having ruined much of the production of these small plots, landlords began massive evictions so that they wouldn't be liable for the tax because if the land's not being used, then it's not going to have that tax, but if the land is in use and it does and um if the tenant doesn't you know produce enough then you have to pay a tax for it right so but you if know. it's empty there's no tax so they began huge amounts of evictions wow. kicking the yeah kicking people off the land so they wouldn't be liable for the tax and then another law was passed by the british that made people who occupied more than a quarter acre of land ineligible for aid Oh my god. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get any sort of um, government assistance if you occupied more than a quarter acre of land. So together, these two things served to marginalize the Irish even more and deprive them of their livelihoods and further concentrate land in the hands of the English elite, many of whom might only visit their Irish holdings once or twice in their whole lives. Almost half a million people were evicted from their lands during this time while another half million had to give up their land in order to receive the aid that they needed to survive. Ah. So this is a letter uh, from a Catholic bishop at the time. Who was, he was there, and this is, this is what he wrote about something he saw. 700 human beings were driven from their homes in one day and set adrift on the world to gratify the caprice of one who, before God and man, probably deserved less consideration than the last and least of them. The horrid scenes I then witnessed, I must remember all my life long. The wailing of women, the screams, the terror, the consternation of children, the speechless agony of honest, industrious men wrung tears of grief from all who saw them. I saw officers and men of a large police force who were obliged to attend on the occasion cry like children at beholding the cruel sufferings of the very people whom they would be obliged to butcher if they had offered the least resistance. The landed proprietors in a circle all around and for many miles in every direction, warned their tenantry with threats of their direct vengeance against the hospitality of extending to any of them, or against the humanity of extending to any of them the hospitality of a single night shelter, and in little more than three years, nearly nearly a fourth of them lay quietly in their graves. Hmm. Uh. Yeah. 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 Wow. In 1848, a movement called the Young Irelanders attempted an uprising, but it didn't really get off the ground, mostly because, like, very few people really had it in them to rebel at this point. Like, yeah. you know, they are literally starving. Um, So the leader of this rebellion, William O'Brien, was sentenced to death, but this was later commuted to exile in Tasmania. So they sent him off on a prison boat to Tasmania. And he became the Tasmanian <laughs> devil. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, the food continued to flow as exports out of Ireland at a massive rate and filled the pockets and bellies of the wealthy in England. Oh, I hate this story. <laughs> During this period of the famine, over a million Irish died and another million were forced to emigrate. Uh, mostly to America, but also to Australia and other parts of the world. When the nonchalance of the British failed to conceal the truly devastating nature of the situation, 
uh, donations poured in from all over the world to provide uh, soup kitchens and food distribution to the starving Irish, though it is likely that much of this was appropriated by the British government that administered it and never actually helped anyone except help those bastards fill their own pockets. Oh. Nevertheless, and so it's it's hard to say how much of this actually made it to anyone, but I do want to take a minute to tell you about some of the donations. Okay. Um, so the Quakers, that weird little religion that I don't understand, um, they actually, they labored tirelessly in Ireland. Not only did they put up a lot of money for relief, but they also built and ran soup kitchens themselves and organized lots of other relief efforts. Mm. The Irish soldiers serving in the British Army in India... Uh, raised what would be today uh, the equivalent of almost $2 million for the relief fund. Wow. So all these amounts I'm going to give, those are all roughly equivalent to what it would be in today's money. Okay. Um, the Anglican Church in Amsterdam raised about 75000 so. Wow, even the Anglicans, shit. Yeah. Um, the British expat community in Mexico, so that would include both Irish and English and Scottish and everyone, they raised about $80,000. Um I can't find amounts, but there were significant donations made by both the Pope and the Tsar of Russia. There was a collection taken by the up among the Choctaw Indian Nation, which itself had recently been stripped of its lands and homes by a force not unlike the British Empire. Wow. Um, and they collected about $5,000 for the Irish. Hmm. The U.S. president at the time, James Polk, sent about $1,500 of his own money and a young congressman named Abraham Lincoln donated about $300. Hmm. The children of an orphanage in New York gathered about $50 worth of change and coins to donate, and the prisoners aboard a British sh prison ship even scraped up $100. Hmm. The Queen of England um, donated a roughly $300,000, but... There's always a but. The mm -hmm. Sultan of the Ottoman Empire tried to donate over a million dollars, but the British diplomats requested that he lower it so that it wouldn't embarrass the crown by him donating more than the queen. Oh my god! What? Ah! So, in, the 1860, <laughs> in 1861, a man named John Mitchell wrote a tract about the role of the British in causing the massive death toll. And he wrote... The Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. Yeah. He was convicted of sedition for this and exiled for 14 years to hard labor on a plantation in Bermuda. Fucking bastards. <laughs> you know, which, as you were going through that, that list of donors, I, I, was I was almost literally on the verge of tears just thinking about, like, these people from all over the world are seeing this happen, and they're doing pretty much everything they can. Um, it's like just children in an orphanage scraping together $50 and sending it there. It's just, that's, that's too much, man. Yeah, they're, they're doing a hell of a lot more than the people who caused it. Yeah, no <clears> shit. <throat> <clears throat> <laughs> yes. So, amid all this death and suffering, there was also some anger. And oh, some landlords learned the hard way that you should watch your back when you turn thousands of people off the land and into almost certain starvation so that you can save a little bit on your taxes. Yeah. In the winter of 1847, 16 landlords were shot, um, including one named Major Dennis Mahone, 
whose vigorous program of eviction had reduced the local population by 60%, over 11,000 people evicted from their homes. Uh, bastard got what was coming to him. And hey, thousands, <laughs> thousands of these people he had shipped to Canada as freight to get them out of his way. Over half of them died en route because he literally had them loaded as freight on ships to Canada. Holy shit, dude. His estate manager once remarked, as evidence of how generous they were, that he had sometimes allowed tenants evicted by his thugs to keep part of the thatch from their destroyed homes so that they could use it to cover the ditches where they would sleep after their eviction. You get what you fucking deserve. Well, one day, Major Mahone took a little carriage ride around his lands and happened to catch a bullet. Yeah. Not not pressing F. No respects. You had it fucking coming, Dennis. Press S to spit. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. Uh, like, fuck that guy. God. And there's so many like him, too. It's, yeah. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Oh. No, it's, it, it's truly, it's truly terrible. Yeah. So, uh -oh. I think that, um... We need we need a little break after that. Like that was some heavy stuff. Um, and there there's some good stuff coming up. But I think we need a little break. So I thought that this would be a good time to to break in that honorable mention. I like your spirit, man, but I don't have one. Uh, I didn't have time today. I thought I'd have time after this job, but uh, I put it off. I put it off, and then I ended up staying in Waco for the entire day. That's the worst thing I can imagine. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> You've you failed me for the uh, last time. <laughs> well, I, I'm actually like eager to get to the get to the 1916 section here. Okay. Um, okay. Well, um, mark it here because I'm gonna. I need to get a drink. Okay. Yeah. No. So I, my favorite diet soda is Diet Cherry Sprite or, or Cherry Sprite Zero. There was only Cherry. one grocery store anywhere around here that carries it, but several weeks ago. It disappeared. The label is still... It's been a month now. The label is still up where it should be with the, that it says Cherry Sprite Zero, but it's never there. It's always something else in its place now. What? Been, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a painful topic. What? Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, because it's been a month, and there's the label on the shelf says Cherry Sprite Zero, and it's just never there. It's, not, it's always something else in its place. That's so sad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that label has become a grave marker. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I actually tried uh, Zevias this week, which are that, that calorie-free soda. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. How is it? It's garbage. I mean, I could see liking it if it were like ginger ale flavored or something, but I got the cola flavored. Ooh. Yeah, I crack one of those open, I take one sip, and I'm like, this is just not satisfying. I only drank one completely, and I'm halfway through the box. Damn. Yeah. That's bad. Um, all right, are we ready to continue? <sighs> sip. Yes, we're ready to continue. <laughs> okay. Where were we? Ah, yes. So... As the um, as the famine finally ends and things get a little more a little more back to normal, the whole issue of land remains, um, and it, that would actually sort of dominate the political scene in Ireland for the rest of the century. Between 1870 and 1903, 
various pieces of legislation slowly advanced the cause of Irish farmers and improved their position vis-a-vis the landlords. And sometimes things did get violent, and sometimes abusive landlords disappeared. This time was mostly characterized by organized protest and collective action rather than violence, um, at least on the part of the Irish. Right. Landlords who treated their tenant farmers unfairly would be shunned completely and thus unable to engage in business or accomplish anything since the Irish would refuse to deal with them or to do anything with them. So no transportation could be hired, no workers would harvest, postal workers would refuse to deliver mail to them. It actually ended up being really effective, uh, uh, you know, sort of collective action against abusive landlords. And it gave us a word. Oh shit! Because one of the first people that this was tr- was this was done to was named Captain Boycott. Huh? And that's where we get the word boycott. He ended up having to hire Protestants all the way from the north for everything because none of the Irish down in the south would work for him or do anything with him. So ultimately, he ended up having to spend three times as much to run his estate as he earned on it, and eventually gave up. You want to hear something kind of ironic? Go for it. One of my honorable mention picks is is boycott. Oh, really? Yeah, for real. So you you just filled it in. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's magical. Yeah. So, at the same time, um, so the late 19th century, a new Republican movement called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, also known as the Fenians, was established. Um, and they were seeking to build a secular Irish Republic, just like the United Irishmen of the late 18th century. They were also an international movement, and they had different branches all over the world wherever there was an Irish diaspora, especially in the U.S. There were a ton of Fenians in the U.S. We actually talked about this on the Liam Lynch episode. Oh, nice. A little, nice. Uh, very, very briefly. Yeah, so they, um, they planned to have a revolution in 1867, but it was super poorly planned, and it was infiltrated very early by British intelligence, so it never really got anywhere, and only a total of 12 people were killed in the attempted rebellion. However, only a total of 12. We literally just had Sorry. a million people die like four paragraphs ago, Aaron. I guess so. <laughs> so, however, a, in a, a coordinating attack on British Canada was launched at the same time by the Irish Fenians in the U.S., which also went nowhere, though it was actually a much more significant military engagement in which almost 40 people were killed, and the, the Fenians actually did successfully win their first engagement with the uh, the Canadian military, but since the rebellion it was supposed to be supporting didn't happen, they just kind of, yeah, they were there and like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> Go home, I guess. <laughs> yep. So, um, yeah, so the Fenians, they are... For as big of a thing as it was, it's amazing. Yeah, it really just like kind of fizzled out. Like, yeah, didn't really. It wasn't really that. Yeah, that that important. Um, but it became you know a, a thing that you know was talked about in a lot of songs, and it, so it's sort of a folk memory became much more important than the actual event. Hmm. So politically, autonomy for Ireland, which is referred to as home rule. Um, so that is Ireland would get to rule itself and have its own parliament and all that, but it would still be part of the British Empire. Mm. That was a very pressing issue um, at this time, and nationalist Irish members of parliament, 
Since remember, now that the Irish are able to vote and sit in Parliament, and they don't have their own Parliament, they're Irish Parliament members who are in the British Parliament now. Um, they formed sort of a party to work towards this goal, and they were led by a man named Charles Parnell, and he also was a Anglo-Irish Protestant who, unlike most of that group, was an advocate for Irish autonomy. It's weird. The vast majority of Protestants are very much against that, but a, a strangely high percentage of leaders of pro-Irish movements are Protestant. It's huh. weird. I don't really understand why that happened. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's. It occurs to me that a Protestant say who broke with the roman tradition or was raised having broken with the roman tradition would sort of have it in him uh to break away from like the the majority belief and so it makes sense that even though they were protestants they're like they're kind of weird they're like the libertarians you know they're like you don't know what the hell they are <laughs> um but you know he's like ah fuck it i don't care if my other friends are all catholics you know they're the only ones who want an irish ireland for irish people and that's a, that's an interesting re I hadn't thought of that but that makes yeah. sense <laughs> thank you for the Protestant perspective Aaron <laughs> <laughs> you <You're> bastard <laughs> so the uh, the British Prime Minister in the 1880s and 90s named William Gladstone and he was actually completely in support of Irish home rule and he tried several times to get it passed through Parliament but he never succeeded due to the stringent opposition of the aristocracy and the Protestant Unionists. Because remember, over in Northern Ireland, they are also having the right to vote and have members of Parliament. So all the Protestants in Northern Ireland are sending people to the Parliament in Britain whose sole job is to make sure Ireland doesn't get autonomy. And in Southern Ireland, the Catholics are sending people to Parliament whose sole job is to try to get Irish autonomy. Right. <laughs> so it's like, um, the name of the general name applied to these Irish politicians. They called them repealers because um, their whole political platform was to repeal the act of union that made Ireland part of the United Kingdom. That was pretty much a one-issue, one-issue deal. Yeah, it makes sense. Sort of like those anti-Masons. <laughs> ah, yes. So ultimately, um, Parnell, who was the leader of the uh, sort of Irish political group, was found out to have been in a long-term adulterous relationship with another member of Parliament's wife, uh -oh. and his political position collapsed because the non-Anglican English Protestant MPs, uh, members of Parliament, and the Catholic bishops, who were two of his major groups of allies, were unwilling to continue supporting him after this had been revealed. So he loses his ties to the non-Anglican Protestants and to the Catholics, and so... Without that, he doesn't really have a political, you know, faction anymore. Right. Yeah, that that doesn't really sit well with uh, with Catholics and Christ or other Protestants, <laughs> Catholics and Christians. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really sit well with any of the like the Anglican, you know, the Anglicans on a whole were like whatever. But yeah, then again, they were literally founded on adultery and you know wife killing. So yeah. <laughs> they anyway. implicitly support it. <laughs> so finally. After all this time, yes! we arrive at our actual subject, James Connolly. James Connolly! <laughs> yes. So, our man James um, was born. Okay. But not in Ireland. Not what in the Ireland. Fuck? 
Um, he was born in 1868 in Edinburgh, Scotland, since his parents had left Ireland due to, oh, I don't know, maybe literally everything we've been talking about. Uh, okay, yeah, I don't blame so, him. <laughs> yeah, so his father and his grandfather were both poor laborers, and he grew up basically in a ghetto in Edinburgh, an Irish ghetto, surrounded by poverty. Um, his mother died while he was still very young. I couldn't find out exactly what her cause of death was, but it seems to just general generally due to their very poor situation and you know bad health and bad right. nutrition and everything um so not a not a super happy child but no so james attended catholic school until he was about 10 years old when he left school to go to work as one does at age 10 mm -hmm. um he got a job as an assistant in a print shop and also did other odd jobs for several years to support to help support his family when he was 14, um, he falsified his identity and enlisted in the British Army, which one older brother had already done since it provided a pretty stable and reliable income. And that was important to people who grew up in, you know, abject poverty. You got to do what you got to do, you know? Yeah, I so James uh, James is serving in a Scottish regiment of the British military since he was, you know, technically born in Scotland. And he spends his military service in the south of Ireland in the 1800, 1880s, right in the middle of this whole land issue we've been talking about. Hmm. And so as a British soldier, he no doubt saw firsthand the landlord's exploitation and oppression of the Irish, who, of course, were his people, even though he was wearing a British uniform. Right. However, there was one nice thing about his time in Ireland. He met a girl named Lily Reynolds, who was a Irish Protestant, whom he would later marry. Um, so that was nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. So he remains in Ireland in the army until 1887, when he finds out that his regiment was going to be transferred to India, which he was not really down for. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. As far yeah. as, like, imperialistic fronts go, India's, you know, it's hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at age 21, he deserts from the army leaving with seven years of military experience, which is very impressive for someone who's 21. Yep. <laughs> um, a girlfriend, and a hatred of British exploitation of the Irish. Wow. Those are three things we should all aspire to have. A healthy scoop of military experience, one girlfriend, and a handful of hatred for British exploitation. Put it all in a blender with a cup of milk, stir it up, blend it up, and you've got yourself a protein shake. That's better than a shamrock shake from McDonald's. It's the real shamrock shake. <laughs> <laughs> so, our boy James heads back to Scotland and lays low for a while, you know, since he deserted from the army. Mm -hmm. um, and Lily, Lily comes with him, and in 1890, they get married. Oh. I know, Aaron, I know you're scandalized by a mixed Protestant Catholic marriage, but try to hold it together for the episode. My father, he was orange, and my mother, she was green. Oh, yeah, right. you've heard that song, yep. Yeah. yep. <laughs> so, I appreciate you trying to hold it together. <laughs> I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. So, uh, needing to support his own family now, um, James starts working as a carter, the truck drivers of the old days. Hell yeah. You, you drive carts around in a truck, and you wear a, a big flat-brimmed hat with some state in the south on it, and... <laughs> <laughs> you like smoke Marlboros at the rest stop and 
Yeah, you you eat beef jerky. It's it's you know it's a life. Climb um, into the back of your truck, right into your cot next to your hooker, yeah. <laughs> swill a little bit of whiskey. <laughs> ah, the American dream. <laughs> yeah. So James is working as a trucker, um, okay. which is what his father had done as well. Um, he also was a carter, and while doing this, he gets pretty interested in something called trade unionism. That is workers organizing together for collective advocacy. Um, I, I know you've you've talked about trade unions in some of the other episodes, so we won't talk too much about that. Okay, cool. Um, but once again, here he was actually father following the example of his older brother. Just so, just like he joined the military because his older brother did. Here he gets involved in trade unionism because his older brother was involved in trade unionism. Now, trade unionism is quite bound up with another ideology, which is why I haven't given Aaron any information about this topic in advance. So, I'm just going to come out and say it. That's right. James Connolly was becoming a socialist. Don't you mean a communist? We'll bleep it there. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> but it's some scuffling sounds. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm back. I'm good. <laughs> We're still going strong. We just had a little misunderstanding. Um, <laughs> we're all good. We're back on the air. Okay. So yeah, so Connolly had become a socialist. Not only through his involvement in trade unionism, but also through reading. Lots and lots of reading. For someone who left school at age 10, Connolly did a lot of reading and study. Uh, especially of history, economics, and socialist theory. Just like the modern-day trucker. <laughs> the this, mo the, really, this modern is... Tr truckers literally listen to the most podcasts of anybody in America. I'm pretty I sure of it. I wonder if any truckers listen to our podcast. To all the truckers out there listening to this, you're doing God's work. And drive straight and live true and don't get blown off the road this winter. <laughs> Excellent. So... <laughs> All this uh, trade unionism and reading and stuff didn't exactly make him super popular as a truck driver, so he started looking for other work. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So in 1895, he starts his own cobbler business. I'm not really sure why, since there's no indication that he had any experience or training at fixing shoes or making shoes, um, mm. but he starts a business doing this. He was also socialisting pretty hard and had become the editor of a Scottish socialist publication called, creatively enough, The Socialist. The Communist. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just so, kidding. Um, <laughs> this rather crucial lack of actual skills at cobbling, combined with the fact that he spent a lot more time getting involved in socialist stuff than fixing shoes or learning how to fix shoes, meant that the shop went under really quickly. Like See? Socialism. Socialism <laughs> doesn't work. It doesn't. It never works. Laissez-faire capitalism. Right now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, within it's a couple months... <laughs> within a couple months, the shop is closed. Um, right. <laughs> at this bad. point, uh, his brother John, the one he had, he had followed into socialism, was the secretary of the Scottish Socialist Federation, while also being employed as a civil servant by the city of Edinburgh. However, after John had the gall to speak at a workers' rally and advocate for an eight-hour workday, they fired his ass. Because um, you, you can't have people saying stuff like that. No, okay. no. It's 14 hours a day from the time they turn three. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Now John has to find a new job, obviously. And so his little brother James took over as socialist secretary so that John could devote himself to finding another real job. Um, and this was this was a super part-time position and not exactly lucrative. And uh, our, our boy James had a growing little family. Uh, around this time, he actually just had his third daughter. He would eventually have six children um, throughout wow. his life. And so he needs a, he needs a, a real job. Right. Yeah. But he was in luck. The Dublin Socialist Club was looking for a full-time secretary, a position with a salary that would pretty much support his family. Like, it wasn't huge, but it would be enough to live on. Nice. So, as an Irishman with a trade unionist background and lots of involvement in socialist movements and a high level of self-education, James was really a perfect fit for the job. So he moves his little family to Dublin, and uh, they, they they live in basically a, a slum. Like they don't live in a very nice place, but they have James is to get used by. to it. James yeah. has it in him. <laughs> this this is true. Yeah. So Connolly spends the next seven years busily managing the Socialist Club, which he quickly reorganized into the Irish Socialist Republican Society. And he founded its newspaper, The Workers' Republic, which he both edited and wrote in extensively. This was really sort of a formational time for Connolly as a political thinker. Mm, okay. With a, with a stable, if, if not exactly ample, but a stable income, living in the slums, and devoting huge amounts of time to reading and writing, he developed his, his ideology both as a socialist and as an Irish nationalist. Gotcha. He grew convinced that home rule, that is autonomy within the British Empire that was being sought by the nationalist politicians like Parnell, was a trap. And that the only, only a truly independent Irish Republic, like that which had been advocated by the United Irishmen and the Fenians, could provide the right conditions for the bright socialist future that he wanted for the marginalized Irish working class. Gotcha. So, I want to take a little step back here, because I know Aaron is getting very uncomfortable with all this commie bullshit. <laughs> um, so, this, this is how I see it, as a, shall we say, stringent non-communist. Okay. This, this is my take. Um, the Irish experience with capitalist society had been universally bad. Very, very bad. Um... Huh. For us, like, yeah, capitalism has major issues, and it definitely fucks us over sometimes, but on the whole, we as a society have a history of doing pretty well with it and being benefited by it. The Irish, on the other hand, have literally never had a single good thing come from a capitalist system, just cruel exploitation and oppression on a cosmic scale by the capitalistic British Empire. So I can see why they might start looking elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have any thoughts on this, Aaron? Uh, you know, I think every system has its weaknesses, um, and I think every system can be exploited. And I think that no matter what the system, there are always going to be those psychopaths who take those exploitation routes and get millions of people killed while they pad their pockets. I don't know if a, I don't know if there's a system that works perfectly well um i would say some, some have more holes than others uh but personally as far as like the whole socialism thing i mean if you can find a way to make it work god 
go crazy. You know, communism, I just, that has more holes. You know, there's just too much dishonesty in communism for it to work long term. And we've seen that again and again on this podcast. Uh, and capitalism, you know, capitalism today, uh, you know, I'm no, I'm no like tree hugger or whatever, but you know, you can just look around and see what, in, you know, massive industrialization at a scale that's, you know, literally unimaginable for us. Uh, that has had, that causes death and famine and destruction uh, all over the world in so many ways. And you know, for the, for example, I can't remember the exact term for it, but. There's a, and I can't even remember exactly where it is. That's how long ago I heard about this. But there was like a country in Africa that was literally starving to death because they couldn't start any industries because, uh, and they, they couldn't become self-sufficient because they were only getting imports and they were getting so much uh, that it was, it it, uh, it disallowed them from being self-sufficient. Oh, yeah, no, this was the, this is the clothing industry. Yes. In- a bunch of Central African countries. Yeah, they get so many clothes donated from Western countries, so many just like secondhand and unsold clothes, that it's impossible for anyone in the country to actually start a textile industry. Yeah, it just, that's what it did. It destroyed the textile industry that was starting to sort of pop up. And then these imports came. And we saw it with the, the Indian famine as well. You know, um, the British did a really good job of you know selling this industrial society thing to india and they got addicted to exports and when the or imports and when the uh when burma was taken by japan four million people starved to death because there was they didn't have the uh the uh self-sufficient infrastructure that they had before they essentially got addicted to the opiate of uh foreign aid and because and that's that's another thing about like foreign aid is like it's a that's a double-edged sword like there's obviously a time for it, but if you get if you get a country or a people sort of hooked on that, they have no motivation to build anything like a infrastructure that's going to be self-sustaining. Uh, and so when uh, those inevitably get cut off at some point, they don't know what to do because um, they they just have no way of um, of taking care of themselves. You know, I thought of that's sort of like okay, let's take your soda for example. Okay, like that soda is not available on the shelf. Uh, and it hasn't been for a while, and that tag is there saying that someday there's going to be more soda. Well, we don't know why, but for whatever reason, that soda got s- stopped from coming to that store, which means you don't have it. So if the industry all fell apart, and you went to the grocery store, and you just wanted some milk or some eggs or something, and say that shipment had gotten cut off, you wouldn't get that either. So say the whole thing goes down. That, that, that store is now a graveyard. There's nothing there. And you're stuck in a system where, I mean, and most of us just don't know how to be self-sufficient anyway on an individual level. Um, so like if the, you know, if Whole Foods here in Austin went down, people, oh would, God, the they, riots. Would, they would lose their shit in a day or two. <laughs> Never forget the quinoa riots of 2020. <laughs> I mean, but for real, you know, um, that's how I see it. And, you know, I think people who argue about what systems work all day long and what systems don't work and, you know, like me sort of half jokingly being pissed off with communism, um, like there's, there's a, there's a scale at which communism works. It's not a universal scale, right? That's anyway, those are my thoughts on it. I don't know if that, if that rang true for you. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I think, yeah, was, this was just a thought of an interesting one, because we usually don't have um, positive things at all to say about communists on this show, so I just kind of wanted to wanted to maybe yeah, talk a little bit about that, since, you know, we're covering a, a socialist here as a as a protagonist. Right. I mean, <coughs> I mean, I'll be, I mean, I'll be perfectly fair. I think communism works on a very small scale and it works beautifully, but on a large scale, impossible. Yeah. So anyway, um, well, good. Thank you for those thoughts. And yeah, let's, uh, let's dive back in. Cool. So around this time, um, it's around the, right at the beginning of the 20th century, Connolly actually did a lot of traveling as well. Um, he would go on lecture tours, speaking to socialist groups uh, all over, including even he even went to America to give lectures on socialism. Hmm. Um, by 1902, which he had just finished this big lecture tour, and he gets back to Dublin, and he finds that without his leadership, the Irish Socialist Republican Society had pretty much ceased to exist. <coughs> um so yeah, like he was he was the editor of their magazine, he was the main writer of their magazine, he was the secretary, he was pretty much everything. So when he was gone on his lecture tour, it kind of just ceased to exist. Um, right, makes sense. Yeah. So he participates with others in the founding of a new party called the Socialist Labor Party, but it didn't really look like it was going anywhere, and he was getting impatient. So in 1903, he decided to move to America. Oh. Um, yeah. Hmm. In America, he worked as an insurance salesman in New York, I believe, um, while also doing socialist organizing. Eventually, he quits the insurance racket and actually starts doing the socialist stuff full-time, and he joins the newly founded Industrial Workers of the World movement and spends several years working to try to organize effective socialist movements among the workers and lower classes of the Irish population of the East Coast of the U.S., which was pretty substantial. Could I ask you just for me and for my uh, for our my our listeners, um, what is your definition of socialism? Because I have in my head all kinds of different like what that means. Like when somebody says socialism, I see AOC's face, right? Like, um, I mean, I think at its probably base definition would be that the ability to affect any kind of social action, so whether that is economic production, political, whatever, is widely dispersed among people rather than being centralized within a sort of autocratic either person or class. Hmm. Okay. I get it. Of course, it. As, we, as we see, and we'll, we'll actually talk about this in the next paragraph, that's not you, often how socialism ends up playing out because... Um, Sometimes you need that, uh, that you know, literally dictatorial autocracy in order to make sure everyone is being good socialists. Um. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's why I see AOC's face in my head. <laughs> um, but I think that's also why the other thing that I see um, is, you know, a bunch of ineffective, disorganized, you know, liberals over at the coffee shop, you know, um, talking about how socialism must be brought around and... You know, but there's no one there to direct that energy, um, you know. Plus, I'm going to say something controversial. None of those people are working class in the first place. That's true. Damn it. I work in a university. <laughs> I am the least communist person of all the people I work with, and I am also by far the most working class. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true. How'd you spend your summer? Um, 
fixing tractors. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is yeah, modern so-called socialists are for the most part a joke. Until you're an it. you're an intelligent man of the field. <laughs> <laughs> I am outstanding in my field. <laughs> <laughs> Get it? You're just a humble farmer tending to your memes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, Connolly does does this for a while until 1910 when he returns to Ireland and around that time publishes his two big significant works, which are called Labor, Nationality, and Religion <clears throat> and a Marxist historical analysis called Labor in Irish History. And now we are actually going to talk a little bit about Connolly's socialism. Okay. So he considers himself a socialist and has for a very long time. But he always advocated um, a sort of revolutionary uh, syndicalism, which is he called industrial unionism. That is, he wanted a real workers' movement and workers' revolution, not a vanguard of intellectuals leading the workers and right. sort of in many cases killing the workers if they weren't you know ideologically pure so he actually ends up sort of ideologically separate from many other socialist leaders since he advocated for a revolution by the workers that immediately gives power to democratically formed social groups a revolution which the workers themselves plan carry out and benefit from without being subordinate to a political party so that's, as you can imagine, sets him apart from many socialists, because in a lot of the socialists, you know, we've covered on the show, it's all about leadership in the party and moving up in the party, and Connolly did not believe in that. He did not believe in subordinating the revolution to a political party. Okay, that makes sense, and that's, I'm glad you cleared up the difference there. Yeah, um, so it's, yeah, he's he is definitely not not on the same page as a lot of the, the big socialists throughout history we think of. Um, he also really, really hated the way socialists fought with each other and basically had, you know, squabbles when you'd have rival socialist parties or factions within socialist parties. And he thought that that was the greatest obstacle preventing the workers from actually doing anything effective against capitalism was sectarianism. So here's a little quote from one of his articles. Um, the development of the fighting spirit is of more importance than the creation of the theoretically perfect organization. That indeed the most theoretically perfect organization may, because of its very perfection and vastness, be of the greatest possible danger to the revolutionary movement if it tends or is used to repress and curb the fighting spirit of comradeship in the rank and file. That's badass. Yeah, so that's like a pretty solid indictment of most socialist movements. Yeah, that's an indictment of the coffee shop socialists. The development of the fighting spirit is of more importance than the creation of the theoretically perfect organization. He's not about the dialectic, you know? Um, it's not about the perpetual revolution. It's the it's actually doing something. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so no, I, I threw this in, in for you so we could see you. I, I knew you'd like it. Thank um, you. <laughs> So, in Ireland now, back in Ireland after 1910, he continues his activism and continues to be a leader in trade unionism. In 1913, he organized a massive labor strike in Dublin, which involved 20,000 workers and lasted six months. 
and it really paralyzed much of the industry of Dublin. During this strike, things got very, very violent, as you can imagine, and many workers were killed in struggles with the police and with hired enforcers, and so consequently Connolly formed a paramilitary group called the Irish Citizen Army, which was to provide protection for the workers in the trade unions during strikes. Uh-oh. Yeah. Shit's going down. Shit's going down. Another group that was growing at around the same time was a political group called Sinn Féin, which is Gaelic for We Ourselves, which advocated for independence for Ireland, full stop, rather than autonomy within the British Empire, hmm. which had been what most sort of leading Irish nationalists in politics had been advocating for for the last 50 years. These people wanted independence for Ireland. Um, and many nationalists from other factions were also involved with Sinn Féin, it wasn't really until later that Sinn Féin itself would be a major player. At this point, it's still most most important people, even if they're involved with Sinn Féin, they're more, it's more important that, you know, the, the other things they're involved in. Sinn Féin later on becomes the major player, but that's not until later. Okay. So around the same time, so, you know, 1910 and on, Parliament seemed ready to finally pass a home rule bill to give autonomy to ireland Uh oh and all hell broke loose the presbyterians in ulster made it clear that they would go into violent revolution before accepting an irish government and they established a paramilitary called the ulster volunteer force and in response the mostly catholic irish formed the irish volunteer force to meet the threat of a violent protestant uprising much of the British military, as you can imagine, was openly sympathetic with the Ulster Protestants. And there was one famous case where a bunch of officers in the British military resigned rather than follow orders to prevent the Orange Men from seizing a weapons supply. Hmm. Because they yeah, they were in open sympathy with this paramilitary group and they'd been ordered to go go um ta- move a, a supply of weapons that was going to be seized and they resigned rather than doing it. Gotcha. So, both and both the Irish and the Ulsterites were smuggling in weapons, ammunition, and armaments, mostly from Germany, um, because they make the best weapons, obviously. Right, obviously. Um, Protestants refused to accept the idea of living under a government of the majority Catholic Irish population, and they coined some very nice slogans, like this one of my favorites, Home Rule Means Rome Rule. That's a good one, yep. Yeah, um, because, yeah, they just couldn't could not stomach the idea of living under a catholic government so finally um a partition plan was established that would leave the province of ulster out of the home rule ireland and you know the rest of ireland would get home rule ulster would stay part of the uk but no one was really satisfied with this at all because it left hundreds of thousands of protestants in sort of neighboring areas in home rule Ireland, and it left hundreds of thousands of Catholics in Ulster. Yeah. So no one was really happy with this partition idea, but nevertheless, the bill was passed in 1914. However, due to the fact that World War I was starting, um, another bill was passed which allowed the government to suspend the implementation of this bill until World War I was over. So it's like, yay, after, you know, 800 years, we finally got a home rule, and it's suspended until after World War One. And also, we're going to conscript Irishmen to fight Britain's war. Never so forget that, that. 
that's that's actually you're you're getting ahead. That comes later. That's after the material of this episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah. Spoiler alert. Jesus. <laughs> so, um, both the nationalist Irish leaders in Parliament and the Ulster leaders agreed to commit their volunteer troops to the British war effort. So the Irish volunteer force and the Ulster volunteer force were both <clears throat> sent off to the trenches instead of fighting each other, which they'd been founded to do. Not everyone was pleased with this arrangement, and many Irish volunteers detested the decision by their Irish political leadership to commit them to the British war effort. Right. Among those who were angry was James Connolly. He opposed giving any assistance to the British Empire, which he had consistently always done. In 1903, he'd actually spoken out against the British Boer War and participation in it, and now he spoke out against participation in World War I, famously declaring, I know of no foreign enemy of this country except the British government. Badass. <laughs> so, those members of the Irish Volunteer Force who opposed fighting for England... Um, they were a minority, but there there was a significant minority, um, and many of them were also secret Fenians from the Irish Republican Brotherhood or members of Sinn Fein. So these they were they had a lot of involvement nationalist groups. Obviously, they begin to discuss the possibility of an uprising since you know Home Rule had been taken yet again off the table because of World War One. Connolly was also very much wanting an uprising for an independent Irish Republic. And he was afraid that these other nationalist groups would sort of talk themselves out of it. So he actually, even, so they're, they're in the sort of the preliminary planning phase and Connolly's afraid they're not going to actually go through with it. So he threatened to start ordering attacks on the British by his Irish citizen army alone, if necessary. And they all knew, you know, if we have the crazy socialists attacking British people, Britain's going to come down on us like a load of bricks. So we need to, we need to get Connolly involved in you know our planning and actually bring the carry this out so um they they bring Connolly on board to the planning of the uprising and so the military council of the republican brotherhood the which consists of all the leaders who are planning this rebellion they give the go-ahead to start really preparing and um they start making the plan um they also try to secure help from the germans in munitions and stuff and the Germans agree, and they actually sent a big shipload of armaments. Whoa. Um, yeah, a whole ship, so it was like 20,000 guns. And oh, man. Mil millions of rounds of ammunition. Unfortunately, the ship actually arrived ahead of its schedule, and the British had intercepted a message about it. So, since the ship had arrived ahead of schedule, they weren't ready to, you know, they are ready to start unloading. And since the British had intercepted a message, they were on their way to stop the ship. So they had, the British actually got there in time to prevent any of the weapons from being unloaded, and the Germans scuttled the ship so the British wouldn't get the weapons. Damn it. Yeah, I know. So close. Mm -hmm. So due to this setback, at the very last minute, the commander of the Irish Volunteer Force in Ireland, Aoyne McNeil, demobilized the volunteers um, since he didn't want to proceed without these weapons. They had been using newspaper... Um, announcements to sort of coordinate. So they had an announcement that there was going to be a big military drill and parade, which was going to be the setting of the rebellion. That way they could get, you know, start getting troops together and it wouldn't look suspicious. 
So he puts out a notice that the planned military exercise was canceled. And so that was supposed to be the signal for the uprising. So a lot of people now think it's canceled who had been planning to take part. And so this greatly reduced the number of volunteers who participated in the uprising, since many now didn't even know it was going to still happen. But the other, the rest of the uh, people still were planning to go through with it. And so on Easter Monday of 1916, forces from the Irish volunteers who hadn't, who'd been sort of present to know it was still happening because the Irish volunteers from everywhere else thought it was canceled. So only the ones who were sort of on hand knew it was happening. So soldiers from the Irish volunteers, as well as Connolly's Irish citizen army, together with smaller detachments from other groups, numbering about 1,250 in all, marched into the city center of Dublin, and as commander of the Irish Citizen Army, which was the largest single force, Connolly was considered the commander-in-chief of the Rising. The rebels occupied the old stately Dublin General Post Office, which on which they raised Irish flags and proclaimed the formation of an Irish Republic. One of the other leaders, Patrick Pierce, read out the proclamation, which was signed by the seven leaders of the Rising, including Connolly, and it was posted publicly, and it was transmitted over radio in Morse code wow. to as far as far as they could transmit it. And I'm just going to read you the proclamation of the Irish Republic. Oh, oh yes, please. Yes. So you should uh, when <laughs> in post, you should cue in some nice music. Here. I will. Let me mark that. <laughs> Irish men and Irish women. In the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open military organizations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, having patiently perfected her discipline, having resolutely having resolutely waited for the right moment to reveal itself, she now seizes that moment and supported by her exiled children in America and her gallant allies in Europe, but in relying first on her own strength, she strikes in full confidence of victory. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destinies to be sovereign and indefeasible. The long usurpation of that right by a foreign people and government has not extinguished the right, nor can it ever be distinguished except by the destruction of the Irish people. In every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the past 300 years, they have asserted it in arms. Standing on that fundamental right, and again asserting it in arms, in the face of the world, we hereby proclaim the Irish Republic as a sovereign, independent state, and we pledge our lives and the lives of our comrades-in-arms to the cause of its freedom, of its welfare, and of its exaltation among the nations. The Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irish man and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens, and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all the children of the nation equally, and oblivious to the differences carefully fostered by an alien government, which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Until our arms have brought the opportune moment for the establishment of a permanent national government, representatives of the whole people of Ireland and elected by the suffrages of all her men and women, 
The provisional government hereby constituted will administer the civil and military affairs of the Republic in trust for the people. We place the cause of the Irish Republic under the protection of the Most High God, whose blessings we invoke upon our arms. And we pray that no one who serves that cause will dishonor it by cowardice, inhumanity, or repine. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valor and discipline and by the readiness of its children to sacrifice themselves for the common good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called. I am so ready to rebel right now. <laughs> what a so, hardcore. Is there a, a recording of that somewhere? There is not. Um, Damn it. Yeah, I know. Oh, I would love to like fade that in. It, yeah, oh, man. Be, I don't think there is. Well, your speech voice was very inspiring. <laughs> okay, so what happened after this thing? Okay, okay. So yes, back to... Okay, so rebel detachments um, occupied various strategic points and buildings around the old center of Dublin, hoping that their stand would spark a massive rising all over Ireland. On this first day, uh, the British were caught very much by surprise and unprepared and generally failed to stop the rebels and were actually pushed pushed back for many of their strong points and barracks. Um, one regiment of Anglo-Irish soldiers in the British Army, however, actually launched a successful counterattack against one rebel column and also shot a nurse in uniform, the first civilian casualty of the Rising. The British did a lot of this. Um, it's pretty damn hard to mistake a nurse in her hospital uniform for a, like, man in tweed with a rifle. <laughs> yeah. That sucks. Man. Yeah. Um, over the course of the week, however, the rebels would slowly lose this ground that they took on the first day as the British army poured into the city. Eventually, there were over 16,000 British soldiers, supported by batteries of heavy artillery and even a naval gunboat. The rebels fought hard, absolutely yard by bloody yard. In one position, 17 Irish volunteers resisted a detachment of 1,000 British soldiers for an entire day, killing or wounding 240 of them. Holy shit. In another place, it took the British nine hours of fighting to move the front less than a thousand feet. So, like, this is a very determined defense. I was gonna say. By the rebels. Like, because remember, there's a total of, you know, a little over 1,200 of them versus, at this by the end, 16,000 British soldiers and artillery and armored vehicles and everything. During this whole week, the British mercilessly bombarded the city and inflicted huge numbers of civilian casualties. Um, you know, they, they used incendiary shells in their artillery, and the whole old part of the city was practically a flaming wreck. Um, after one, and there's huge amounts of atrocities committed. After one street proved especially hard to take, uh, the British responded by indiscriminately breaking into houses and bayoneting civilians. On the, who lived on this street because the, this road had been difficult for them to take because at one end of the road was a fortification by the rebels and so they took it they just took their anger out on people who lived on the road Jesus Christ uh, one officer summarily killed six civilians not in combat 
um, including weirdly two journalists who were who were worked for pro-British newspapers. But this one British officer just started killing civilians, um, even even ones who were pro-British. Jeez. And he, um, it's funny. This guy, his name was Bowen Coulthurst, was his last name, Captain Bowen Coulthurst. He ends up finally being court-martialed and is found guilty, but for reason of insanity is just confined to an asylum for a year, and then the British ship him off with a full pension to Canada to hide him from Irish revenge. What the hell? And, and it gets worse. The guy, there was another officer um, who was really responsible for getting him court-martialed because this other officer was like, no, this is absolutely not cool. You can't do this. And... The, pe- the people on hand who were in charge, superior officers, refused to do anything about it. So he made the formal sort of report that got the court-martial. But he was dishonorably discharged for undermining the British cause in Ireland by writing that report that got this officer court-martialed for murdering six civilians. For fuck's sake. Yeah. Um, so that's the one, that's the one, the one good guy on that side. The British were the good guys in the world wars, everybody. The British have always been the good guys. They never do anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah, for real. It's just, it's ridiculous, though. Anyway, so by Saturday, so at the end of the week, so this has been going on a whole week, the Dublin General Post Office, which was the command post of the Rising, was just an absolute flaming ruin from a week of British shelling, as was a large part of the city. Connolly had been shot through the ankle, among many other wounds, um, and so he gave the command to Patrick Pierce, who made the decision to surrender in order to avoid more deaths among the civilian population, because he saw that the British would literally burn all of Dublin down if they had to and kill everyone. And so since it was clear that they were going to have, you know, they were going to be defeated eventually, Patrick Pierce decides to surrender to save civilian lives. Wow. After the surrender was delivered and the surviving rebels were rounded up, Connolly reassured a group of captured rebels around him, Don't worry, those of us that signed the proclamation will be shot, but the rest of you will be set free. God. During the Rising, 126 British soldiers were killed, 17 military police, or um, rather government police in Dublin, 82 rebels, and 260 civilians. Wow. So you'll notice that over half the casualties are civilians. Yep. And in addition, there are about 3,000 wounded, many of whom, most of whom, are civilians. Yeah. Almost all these civilian casualties were caused by the British, who made heavy and often indiscriminate use of artillery, incendiary explosive shells, and heavy machine gun fire. Um, They really didn't care who was in the way. Yeah. Ninety rebels were sentenced to death by court-martial of which 16 court-martials were approved for execution, including all seven who signed the proclamations. The executions, and this is this is where it gets weird, were carried out by firing squad over the course of, like, a week. Normally, you execute people, you know, all at once, but the British decided to just stretch it out and just execute, like, one or two people and then leave it a couple days and execute someone else. And it was like some sort of weird psychological game they were playing. Yeah. Um, Oh, God. So the last day of the executions was May 12th, and it was the execution of James Connolly. He was allowed a brief visit from his wife beforehand, during which he told her, The socialists will not understand why I am here. 
for they forget that I am an Irishman. Huh. What does that, that mean? Uh, so, you know, socialist, this, he is an Irishman fighting for the national cause of Ireland. Most socialists would be like, why are you fighting for, you know, something that's not an international workers revolution? Oh, right. Okay. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And so he's saying, you know, they forget that I'm an Irishman and I'm loyal to Ireland and to the Irish people. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So James Connolly was severely injured in the fighting, as we talked about. And a doctor had said that he was only going to live another day or two at most. But the British show must go on. So since his ankle was shattered by a bullet, he could neither stand nor walk. So he was carried into a, into a prison courtyard on a stretcher where he received last rites from a priest who encouraged him to pray for those about to put him to death. And Connolly said, I will say a prayer for all men who do their duty. Hmm. Instead of being taken to the end of the courtyard where the wall for the firing squad was and where all the others had been executed, Connolly's broken body was tied to a chair in the middle of the courtyard and repeatedly shot. Jesus. Yeah, so it's... It's, it was not, this was not done according to any manner of, you know, dignity or professionalism. Yeah. He was then buried without a coffin in a mass grave with the other signers of the proclamation. They literally buried them in a mass grave without coffins. Wow. Yeah. So the aftermath of the Easter Rising, its brutal suppression, and the executions that followed, and the way they were carried out, especially that of Connolly led to an awakening of Irish sentiment against the British government. Right. Only a small part of the population had been in support of the Rising when it happened, but the way that the British handled it turned most of the Irish population into sympathy with the rebel cause. Uh-oh. Even the leader of the Ulster Unionist forces, so the Protestant paramilitary, voiced his opposition to the continued executions and was like, I, I think you're kind of going overboard with this. And, uh, so, you, you know it's bad when the paramilitary that was founded to fight these people is like, why are you doing this? Yeah, like, what gives, man? <laughs> so, John Dillon, who he was the deputy to the leader of the Irish members of Parliament, declared before Parliament, quote, thousands of people who ten days ago were bitterly opposed to the whole of the Sinn Féin movement and to the rebellion are now becoming infuriated against the government on account of these executions. It is not murderers who are being executed. It is insurgents who have fought a clean fight and a brave fight, however misguided they may be. Wow. Yep. He was uh, he was jeered and laughed at by the British Parliament. Morons. Those morons. <laughs> yeah. The... 18, uh, 1,800 people were sent to internment camps for suspected involvement in the uprising. And, you know, some of many of these people were people who were involved in the uprising but weren't executed, which Connolly was for the most part right. Most people were not executed. Um, but 1,800 people were sent to internment camps. And it was in these camps that the next generation of Irish paramilitary leaders would be formed and would begin planning their moves. The Easter Rising is only the beginning of decades of bloody open conflict in Ireland, which mostly ended in the 90s but still sometimes goes on today hmm. um but that's where we're going to end but um i'm thinking we might need a part three to see how this is going to play out what do you think aaron uh, i'm totally in support of that because i'm currently 
trying to move across the country again like a psychopath <laughs> uh so an extra week would be helpful <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm thinking i'm thinking uh yeah part three on ireland in the 20th century and irish independence this will be our longest series hell yeah yeah i think wait yeah i think three parts is the few we have, i don't think we've done a three-parter we did do a four and a half hour episode though that's true that's true <laughs> Uh, wow. Well, thanks for that. I think it's time to head for the surface. Yep, absolutely. All right. So, George, what did you do this weekend? Oh, nothing too exciting. I finished a few odd jobs, led my breaks, did a lot of reading, you know, Hmm. normal stuff. Guy stuff. Normal stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? What do I do this weekend? Uh, The same thing I I do every weekend. Try to take over the world. (laughs) Classic. One one of these days, it's going to... It's gonna work, and you all better watch out. I think I'm I'm probably gonna get some help from from the Irish because, well, <laughs> yeah, it's my Anglo blood telling me to take over the world, so maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> maybe I maybe should. you should get help of a different kind. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's there are specialists who who can help people like you, Aaron. <laughs> well, I think it's time. <laughs> to, what? It, are you or someone you know suffering from the British Empire? <laughs> And on that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, again, you're probably British, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the Easter Rising play you out. Do I?
Yeah. 